want to start this morning with a little bit of a um, confession or testimony uh, situation. I know that you guys have uh, heard Guga say that when he's preaching these things, he's preaching them to himself. Like when he's uh, the things he's studying and going through. And that has really uh, been the case with me. I feel like last uh, week, that's probably why I got a little emo- I, When that was happening at the end, I was getting a little emotional. I'm like, what's happening? I don't know what's going on. But I think that's probably why. And then going through this stuff here um, has just been um, what I've needed to hear. God knows I needed to hear it. And everything I say in there, some of these things I'm going to tell you might even seem hard or harsh. But you got to remember, this is me. I'm talking to me right here. And I'm hoping I'm not the only one that needs to hear these things. Probably not. <laughs> so we'll see. But we're going <clears> to <throat> talk today about the uh, Reformed Doctrine of Vocation. Or God at work. Okay, and I'll show you where I got that title later. I like the double meaning on that, God at work. And we'll talk about that too. But let's, uh, let's stand, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you'd stand with me. I'm going to read from uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You may be seated. God bless the reading of his word. So I wanted to talk again about how I, how I got here. Um, we kind of need to talk about how we ended in Ecclesiastes. Um, we ended with the main message of Ecclesiastes being life in God's world under the sun, in God's world, His created world, is a gift, not gain. We're not here to chase and chase and chase and try and have our best life now or do everything that we think we want to do in this world while we're here. And also that God is God. He is in control, not us. And quit fighting to try and be in control all the time. And we mentioned that labor was a gift. Labor is a gift of God. Not for gain. Not to just enjoy the fruit of the labor for myself. But it was a gift from God. And Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, also helps us to live in a fallen world facing our imminent death and every other situation with peace that surpasses all understanding. And I want to talk a little bit about what's that mean? Help us live in a fallen world. That's... That's what we're going to be talking about today, how that looks, what that looks like. 
What do we do while we're here? <laughs> okay, so small topic. We'll have it done, no problem today, right? This is definitely going to be another little taste situation, and you're going to have to continue. We could spend, I'll show you a book later, we could spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on this. But it's just a, a taste to get us going. I also, part of the reason we're here, I read this book, God at Work. And I like the double meaning there because we get, you think of it in two different ways, right? I'm bringing God with me to work, like God at my things I'm doing, right? God at work, but also God at work, right? He's the, he's the subject in that one, okay? So kind of a neat little double meaning there. And then when we were talking about Ecclesiastes and on Wednesday nights, our group, the guys were coming over and we were looking up words in Ecclesiastes and they were a huge help and it was a great time of fellowship and fun. But when we were talking about labor, I brought up the reform doctrine of vocation and everyone said, what's that? I said, oh, a reform doctrine that these guys don't know about. I have to, <laughs> we'll have to dig into that a little bit. So that got, you know, I was excited from that standpoint too. But one thing I've been praying about uh, for this in particular is that you guys will um, see or start to see that there's a lot more to what we would call reformed theology than just the five points of Calvinism. Okay. And then I got a quote about this doctrine from the book, Got at Work. <clears throat> and uh, this kind of sums it up. Really well. It is odd that such a liberating, life enhancing doctrine has become all but forgotten in our time. Passed over in our seminaries, sermons, and Bible classes. But the doctrine of vocation makes up an important part of the spiritual heritage that contemporary Christians have unfortunately cut themselves off from and are in such great need of recovering. It is more important than an understanding of work, more than a slogan that we should do all things for the glory of God, more than a vague theological platitude. The teachings on the subject by the old Reformation theologians are remarkably specific and realistic, giving practical guidance for how this doctrine can be lived out in a real fallen world. But more than that, the doctrine of vocation amounts to a comprehensive doctrine of the Christian life, having to do with faith and sanctification, grace and good works. It is a key to Christian ethics. It shows how Christians can influence their culture. It transfigures ordinary, everyday life with the presence of God. That's all we're going to try to cover this morning. <laughs> so you can see we're not going to be able to do that, but hopefully this will inspire some more study and some more thinking on these things. So here's my outline. It's similar. I took a similar approach to the book of Ecclesiastes, even though this is a doctrine and not a book. These questions, uh, who, when, where, what, and why, are good questions, like I mentioned last time, to ask about just about anything. A book you're reading, a movie you've seen, whatever it is. Those are good questions to get at the heart of whatever you're thinking about or studying. So let's start right off with who. What do we mean by who? Who is who taught this? Who is who is teaching this doctrine? Who are the proponents of this doctrine? And uh, since we called it the Reformed doctrine of 
vocation. Let's look at what some of the reformers talked about and said about it and taught about it. Martin Luther probably did more than any other Protestant to establish the theology of vocation. Like no other theologian before him, he insisted on the dignity and value of all labor. Luther did more than break the split between sacred and secular work. He empowered all believers to know their work was serving humanity and they enjoyed God's full blessing and was part of God's sovereign plan. He insisted that the farmer shoveling manure and the maid milking her cow please God as much as the minister preaching or praying. And further, as we work in our God-given station in life, we become agents of his providential care. God, these quotes are quotes from Martin Luther. God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Though our hand, or through our hands, God answers the prayers of his children. We pray for daily bread at night and bakers rise in the morning to bake it. The same holds for clothing. God, quote, gives the wool, but not without our labor. I like this phrase. If it's on the sheep, it makes no garment. That's, <laughs> that would be funny, trying to wear a sheep. Humans must shear, card, and spin. Through our work, the naked are clothed, the hungry fed, the sick healed. Through our work, we please our maker and love our neighbor. And when we say, uh, when I was reading earlier about the reformers, we think of Martin Luther as a reformer, and they were also called Protestants, right? Because they protested what was going on in the Catholic Church, so they're Protestants. And then if they happened to live in England, they were called Puritans, too. So Protestants, Puritans, and then when they came to America, they became pilgrims, right? Same people, <laughs> Same people, all reformed, all protesting what was going on in the Catholic Church. Wikipedia says that the doctrine of vocation is also called the Puritan work ethic, or the Protestant work ethic, or even the Calvinist work ethic. And Wikipedia goes on to say, it is a work ethic concept in theology, sociology, economics, and history that emphasizes hard work, discipline, and frugality, and there are results of a person's subscription to the values espoused by the Protestant faith, particularly Calvinism. I don't totally agree with that. I think there's a lot more to that than what Wikipedia is saying there. But I found it interesting that they included uh, the Protestant faith and particularly Calvinism. That was interesting. <clears throat> one of the uh, Puritans, I'll just talk about one of them right now, was Richard Baxter. And he wrote this little book right here called The Christian Directory. Okay? Little book. Right? Yeah. And he, I, I have a little kind of a special relationship with Richard Baxter because uh, he also uh, wrote a book, A Grief Sanctified. Um, he lost his wife uh, to disease. And J.I. Packer actually went through and took a bunch of Richard Baxter's writing about when he was going through that with his wife and all. And that was very helpful uh, to me and blessing to me. Um, so I'd recommend that book as well, A Grief Sanctified. And also he had no formal education. So I, as I have not had really any formal education, I kind of identify with him on that too. But this book right here, <clears throat> in the foreword, 
by J.I. Packer, he says that um, before forwards became a normal thing, uh, these guys that were writing these books would put a lot of what the book is about on their title page. Like the title page was very, very important. So he points out the title page for this book. So I'm going to read you what this book is about. Christian Directory or A Sum of Practical Theology and Cases of Conscience Directing Christians How to Use Their Knowledge and Faith How to Improve All Helps and Means and to Perform All Duties How to Overcome Temptation and to Escape Sin or Mortify Every Sin Escape or Mortify Every Sin In Four Parts Christian Ethics or Private Duties Christian Economics or Family Duties Christian Ecclesiastes or church duties, Christian politics, or duties to our rulers and neighbors. So that's all this book's about. Everything, right? <laughs> it's a good book. So we had a lot to say about what we're doing, what our vocation is, what we're doing here as we're living under the sun, right? And I'd also commend to you William Bradford. Uh, read his book of Plymouth Plantation. He was uh, on the Mayflower, William Bradford. Uh, one of the first ones to come and settle here in America. They came from Holland. They were living in Holland because they escaped persecution in England under King James. So they went to Holland. And when they got to Holland, they found out that their children were working so hard, so many hours, that they weren't being taught uh, the faith. So they decided rather than be persecuted in, in England or lose their children in Holland, that they would spend months crossing the ocean going to somewhere that they didn't, but all of the reason they left was because their faith and the faith of their children was the most important thing. So the Puritans have a lot to say about our vocation, this doctrine of vocation. But what about biblically? Right? That's the most important. Is this something God is saying? God is trying to teach us, right? Are his biblical authors showing us this doctrine? Or is it inspired? Is this an inspired doctrine? Because if we don't find his, uh, this teaching in the Bible, then it doesn't really matter what the Reformers have to say. We're not interested in their opinions on life unless they're pointing us to the Word of God. But before we, need to, uh, before we look at the Scriptures directly, we need to define this word vocation because it's not found really in the Bible. Okay, The word vocation. Everybody, some people know I, I would kind of call myself kind of a word nerd, I guess. I like language is my hobby. I'm not very good at it. I did study some languages in the military, and um, I would say it's a hobby of mine, uh, linguistics, but I'm not a trained linguist or any of those things. But I am fascinated that God has given us language, right? That He's given us His Word. And uh, I just, I like words. So this, this one really had me, this word vocation kind of had me chuckling and smiling because I really didn't know heading off into it. And I wish my Wednesday night guys had been there with me because you guys will see here that it, uh, it kind of uh, applies. <laughs> the first thing I want to do to, in fact, I'm going to go back one. <laughs> the first thing I want to do is ask you a question. Because our native, as as native English is our native language, right? For us, if your native, in your native language, words are self-defining. Okay, so if I ask you to describe a ball, you'd say it's a ball. If I said describe a baseball, you said it's a ball they use for baseball, right? It's just what you think of when I say a word. It's what you think of. 
So when I say the word vocation, now that you've seen the other slide, <laughs> but when I, when I say the word vocation, don't say it out loud, but think about what word comes to mind or words. Okay. Was it job probably or occupation? Right. When we say the word vocation, we think of vocational training, right? You go to vocational school to learn a trade, to learn a job. So we think vocation, we think job. And that's not really what it's about. Vocation is a noun, and it's from the Latin word vocatio. And it means calling. It actually means calling. And the Roman Catholic Church used it because they used the Vulgate, right? The Latin version of the Bible. And they were Roman. So it's a Roman church, so they used Latin. Okay? So if we go back and look at this word in the Vulgate, vocatio, and we go back and see it in the Greek... It's actually calling, the word calling, which is klesis from the verb kaleo, or to call. Okay, does that sound familiar at all from a couple weeks ago? If we take the word ek and the word klesia and put those together, the called out ones, the assembled ones, the church. So that's what our word vocation means, the called. And when we come together, the called out ones are the church. Okay, so it's a calling. So we're going to look in the Bible and see what God has to say about calling. That's the true definition of vocation. So I looked through Luther's sermons to see which passages he was using. And he addressed uh, the Christian's callings from a bunch of different passages. Because as we talked about earlier, it was very much in his mind. It was very uh, prevalent in his teaching. And I have a series, uh, five or six volume series of his and it's not indexed very well, so I was flipping through the, the titles of the sermons and finding ones that had to do with calling, or the Christian's calling, he called it. And there was a bunch of passages, like Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, that says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you... Let's see, there it is right there. Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 4, sorry, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to, the hope, to one hope that belongs to your call. The Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he also found, you see, calling there a couple times. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He also found application in many passages, like in Luke 5, when Christ is calling the disciples. Peter and his workmates were out throwing nets and couldn't get any fish, had empty nets. Christ came, went out, told them throw the net on the other side. And they pulled up more fish than they could handle. They had to have another boat come out and help them. And then he called them to be fishers of men. And Luther uses that. Uh, one of the, one of the applications he had on that is that in our work it's God who provides the game who who, who uh, provides everything right we put we do things on our own empty nets God provides the full nets 
And he also called the disciples. So it is an interesting kind of uh, application to those, but not exactly addressing this type of calling that we're talking about. And a common one that we go to whenever I, in fact, when I brought it up with a few of you, a passage that you guys would remind me of is 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I think this verse applies... I believe it applies because it adds the phrase, whatever you do, but it's not really getting at the heart of this doctrine of vocation or calling because the context of that is eating food sacrificed to idol. Paul is telling the Corinthians there was an issue with people going to people's homes and the people that were there were pagan and they would serve them meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And Paul's basically saying it's not that big a deal. If it bothers your conscience, then don't do it. But eating and drinking is not anything so eat or drink whatever you do do it to the glory of god so there's more to do with that context but because it says whatever you do it could be added to this a little bit and it sounds like colossians 3:23 to 24 which says whatever you do work heartily as for the lord and not for men knowing that from the lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward you're serving the lord christ so we'll get back to that passage a little bit later but better, a better scripture that talks about this idea, especially Luther's idea of vocation, is in the First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians seven, starting in seventeen. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God God has called him. This is my rule. In all the churches, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself for the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freeman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And we'll get into that, like I said, a little bit later. But right now, I just want you to see that this idea of calling, of God calling us and placing us in places giving us jobs is in the Bible. And a vital part of this idea uh, when Luther was teaching it, one of the most important parts of this was this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And it came from protesting the unbiblical priesthood of the Roman church and separating of the spiritual and material. So monks, nuns, priests were called, but lay people were not. Okay? And then the reformers came along and said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And they would use passages like 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you go to a passage like that and says, all of us. We're all chosen, precious, and we're making up a holy priesthood. 
And then if you drop down to verse 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were people, but now you are, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there's another quote from the book God at Work. The priesthood of all believers did not make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. A major issue at the time was the prohibition of marriage for people in the religious orders. The reformers looked at Scripture and insisted that marriage is ordained by God and that the family, far from being something less spiritual than the life of a hermit or anchorite, I had to look that word up, that means a, that's a religious hermit, a person who chooses to be a hermit because of their religious beliefs. That's what an anchorite is. So, <clears throat> family, far from being something less spiritual than a life of a hermit or anchorite, is the arena for most for the some of the most important spiritual work. A father and a mother are priests to their children, not only taking care of their physical needs, but nourishing them in the face. Every kind of work, including what had for, heretofore been looked down upon, the work of peasants and craftsmen, which is difficult because who did remember what Jesus did before he started preaching with his dad? He was a carpenter, right? <laughs> so they looked down upon peasants and craftsmen. Instead of all those things, it's an occasion for priesthood, for exercising holy service to God and to one's neighbor. So priesthood of all believers, everybody being called. So we're seeing that the Bible has some things to say, right, about calling and priests. The reformers also took the idea, took on the idea of sainthood, of saints. So we now, as reformed Christians, would say that all believers are called. Have a vocation. All believers are called. All believers are priests. Part of the priesthood of all believers. And all believers are saints. Okay? And I'm not going to have time to dig in all those different facets, but all those ideas came out of the Reformation. So that's who, right? Is that who? Here's when. When were these things taught? This idea of God's calling of all believers... It was taught during the Reformation. They were fighting against, as we talked about, the Romans church, the Roman church's use of calling to mean only religious occupations, monasticism, asceticism, celibacy, works, and positions were vocational. Like holy works and positions that were given by the church. They were higher and more noble. During the Reformation, they were trying to combat man-made ideas and reform them to the Scriptures. So if we look back a little further to the beginning of the church and even the beginning of everything, what do we see if we're trying to reform things, right? So they taught it in the Reformation. Was it taught during the early church? We just read, right? In Ephesians, in Corinthians, we're told to work wherever we're called. In Ephesians, we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If we go back even further into the Scriptures, we look and see... Moses was called, Abraham was called, Noah was called to build a boat. But those were all physical, audible calls. God said, hey, Noah, build a boat, right? Abraham, leave Ur. Moses, go get your people. He gave them jobs, <laughs> right? He called them to do certain things for him. But if we go back even further, let's look at Genesis chapter 1. It's about as far back as we can go, right? 
Genesis chapter 1, verses 26. Starting in verse 26. Is it on there? Yeah. <clears throat> then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which, is in, which has fruit yielding seed. It will be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. That's a great example of what we're talking about. God is working and delegating and giving work. From the very, very beginning, when he created human beings, right? He gave us something to do. He gave us all the stuff to do it. And he called us to work. God was working and calling us to work from the very, very beginning. Where? <clears throat> this one's kind of short and sweet and to the point, but also ties in with Ecclesiastes very well. One of the main or defining ideas of this truth is that it takes place everywhere. Every sphere of life under the sun. You remember that idea from Ecclesiastes? From the time it was created that we just read about until the time it's going to end, God has called us to do things. He's given us things to do. You have numerous callings or stations or responsibilities in your life. It starts early. Children are called to obey their parents. And it lasts until you're called home. Right? During our time under the sun. Where you are is where God has you for a reason. Okay? So that's where. Everywhere. What? We're going to talk about what. What it isn't. We're going to start with. What this doctrine is not. This doctrine is not an excuse to remain stagnant. <clears throat> we have to look a little closer at Luther here. Since Luther is one of the main proponents, we need to look back at his teachings and begin with his desire to dignify all labor. When he insisted that God summons everyone to a station, it means all can serve God and neighbor where they are. And this is a great consolation to all who feel trapped in their work or are restless. It's or... or are restless in their work. But our age needs this exhortation to labor in place instead of asking what's next, right? This age, it's what's next. I had, when I was in the military, I had these friends that always used to talk about the BBD. What's the BBD? And that stood for the bigger, better deal. What's the bigger, better deal? The grass is always greener. We talked about that in Ecclesiastes too, about keeping up with the Joneses. Isn't really keeping up with the Joneses. It's surpassing the Joneses, right? So that they can keep up with you. So, instead of that, 
this idea of growing where God has planted you is a good thing, but it has a cost. Because if every legitimate task is a divine calling, it may be imperative for workers to remain where they're at. But if all work is a divine calling, how can anyone seek a new position or try to reform anything? So if we follow Luther too rigidly, the distance between what we do today and what we do tomorrow kind of evaporates and the motivation to reform goes away. And if we think about this logically, right, Lucy has been studying logic. If we think about this logically, Luther was a priest, right? So he's reading. He comes across the justification by faith alone that revives him. And then he starts seeing this idea of vocation and everybody should stay where they're called. Maybe he should have stayed a priest. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right? So logically, it has a little bit of a... It's not an excuse to remain stagnant. And the saying was and is, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformunda. Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformunda, which is the Reformed Church is always reforming. Constantly taking things, everything, back to the Scriptures. That's reforming it back to the Scriptures. Not forming new ideas, new ways to do things. Always reforming things back to the Scriptures. And then we can change things that need to be changed that have gotten away from the Scriptures, right? So we can't stay totally still. Sanctification is happening and we don't stay children physically or spiritually, right? There's a constant growth. We're moving. And it isn't, number two, it isn't doing works or religious things that are separate from our everyday lives. It's not some weight-based luck or karma system that we have to add to for things to go well for us, right? Like we do so much good and then we expect good things to happen to us, right? I have a good example of this for me. Yesterday, I was studying and uh, I wanted to watch the Army versus Michigan game because I'm an Army guy. And Army took Michigan at the big house in double overtime. And I didn't see any of that because I was studying, right? So I should have, right? (laughs) Things should kind of go my way, right? How often, and you're laughing now, but how often do we do that, right? How often do we do that? I've done this, Lord. What's up? Right? My turn. It's not that, okay? We don't, it's not some way of doing these good things outside of our life. We're going to see how it's tied, like we read earlier, it's tied to everything. The way we think, move. Another thing it isn't is it's not like these modern books we see on how to succeed at work, how to succeed at family, how to succeed at changing the world, how to feel fulfilled. This idea of just add Jesus and you'll get what you want, right? These are kind of closely tied together, but one's about doing works and one's about telling me what to do, kind of. All these work-based things that if I just have, you know, however many steps, give me the however many steps to do whatever I want. You know, I don't want to, I just want it to go right, so fix it. (laughs) It's not that, okay? What it is. Talk about what it is. What it is, is a solid belief that God has placed us in the time, place, family, job, and church that I'm supposed to be in right now. 
these are all things he's called me to tend to. Remember back in Genesis 1. He's given me all these things that I have that I need to tend to. And I need to figure out with His help and His power and His Word and His Spirit how to do all these things in the best, most biblical, God-honoring way and trust Him and leave all the results to Him. Okay? Like we talked about in Ecclesiastes, we're not fighting to get to a goal, amount of money, certain status level, a thing. It's not about those fighting to get those things. It's about how do we do all these things that He's given us to do in the most biblical, God-honoring way? And then trust Him. He, he's God. We need to trust Him that, and, and the results will work out however He wants them to work out. And Romans 8.28 would say they work out for our good. Not what we think is good, <laughs> but our good. So up on the slide there, it also says <clears throat> when, when humans work... And not just punching a clock, going to your job, but as we're living out our stations in life that God has given us to, we reflect the image of God. Remember in Genesis, God is working, creating. He's given us work to do, and He's given us the means to do it. And He says numerous times in that first passage that we're created in His image, and we're given those things to do. So when we work, when we work these things out, we're actually reflecting the image of God. <clears throat> Number two. God's providence and sovereignty extend to our employment and other roles in life, all other roles in life, such as being a husband, being a wife, being a father, being a mother, being a citizen, being a student. Those are all vocations that you've been called to tend to. And we know that God's sovereignty and His providence extend to all of those things because if not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will and all the hairs on your head are numbered, that's in Luke 12, how likely is it that various roles in our lives are outside His sovereign care and direction? Right? So you are sovereignly being taken care of and where you're supposed to be. And then number three, this is a great one, because rather than direct miraculous intervention, God chooses to care for His creation through human, human agents, right? Does that sound familiar? Like Ruth, Esther? Is that like one of the main points that Guga has been bringing out, right? Is that God uses us he uses human beings, normal, sinful human beings, even unbelieving, to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. That's how His providence works. Those are the means of His providence and His provision. So that's what it is. So why? Why do we need, why do we need to be talking about this? Why, why do we need this truth today? As Reformed saints... We believe in an effectual gospel call, right? Irresistible grace. The eye in tulip. It's also called the effectual call. That the call of salvation is a complete and absolute work of God. Then what? Right? God chooses you from before the foundation of the world. He sends His Son to die for you 
individually, and then He calls you with this effectual call, irresistible grace, and then He just leaves you? Right? No. Leaves us to figure out how to work out our salvation. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's a familiar passage, but I want you to see it. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But look at the next verse. For it is God who works in you, is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do you see how that is? God working and we're working. Right? Just like in creation. We have work. He's given us work. We have very clear instructions. Right? It says there, work out your salvation. What's that mean? We have very clear instructions from God on how to live in all the roles that we've been called to. Okay, I'm going to say that again. We have clear instructions from God on how to live in all the roles we've been called to. But the truth is, like Adam and Eve and every other human being, we think we know better. We want shortcuts. Give me the three steps to a better marriage. Show me the YouTube video on how to be successful at work. Right? We don't want to listen. Let's go back. I said we were going to go back to Colossians. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, I'm going to start up at verse 12 this time. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you should also forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then if we continue, I want you to notice something here. If you continue, what's next? Wives, be subjected to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's pretty specific, right? (laughs) Pretty specific individual instructions on how to do things. And same with Ephesians. We read in Ephesians earlier, but if if you continue into chapter 5, what's in chapter 5? Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. You get into chapter 6. Children, obey your parents. Right? Fathers, teach your children. It's very, very specific things. And there's a lot more. There's a lot more. You know, what, if we, what if we aspired to follow God's Word in every role that we've been called to? Right? And I mean like this kind of. 
This is, I haven't counted, but this is supposedly a million two hundred and fifty thousand words, this book. Okay? It's a lot, but there's a lot there. But what if we aspired that kind of aspired, that kind of thought process on how we lived our lives as Christians in this world? It's not easy. In fact, it's pretty much impossible. But can we be striving for more? Luther, in one of his sermons on vocation, gave a good example. He said, if you're called, if your vocation is to be a husband and a father, even if you had five heads and ten hands, you couldn't do it. He understands that. He understood. He empathized. But we should strive to do it. Right? We're here for a limited time. And this is what we should be striving to do. What God has called us to do and follow His directions and what He's called us to do. And what if, on top of that, we were content or even grateful Right? How often we talked about Ecclesiastes a few times about that chase, right? About striving after different things. Building our own empire, like Solomon did, built his huge empire. What if we were content or even grateful? Hebrews chapter 13. It should turn there. Hebrews 13, 1 through 7. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. A bunch more instructions in there, but right in the middle, it tells us to be content. Free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Turn to First Timothy. First Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we should be content. Do you remember what I started the service with today. 
in First Chronicles. I'm going to keep reading a little bit further. Let me turn to it here. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, the ecclesia, right? And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And then it says, But whom am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants. That's a good image, right? As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand, and all is yours. That's the idea that God is sovereign, really sovereign. I don't know how many times I hear people say, yeah, God is sovereign, but... And then they have some explanation to why it's not quite as sovereign as we think. But we believe, as Reformed believers, that God sovereignly calls us to Him. We have to believe that He sovereignly controls every moment of our day, every station of our life, every place that we're at, every church that we're in, the family we're in, the job we've been given. All of those things are His. And they change. Your stations of life change. We're not always children. We're moving. You have a different job. But God has got you where God has got you. And if we could turn that into contentment and praise and thanksgiving, it would be great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I... <clears throat> was asking before the sermon or confessing before the sermon, Lord, that we don't know everything. We can't know everything. But, Lord, that we would know in our heart and believe from our souls that You are God and have as big of an idea of who our God is as we can fit into our tiny, finite brains, Lord. Help, them to help us to realize that you're unfathomable. But Lord, help us to dive and to dive deep. And give us as much as we can handle, Lord. And cause us to live it out, not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, but to go out through our hands and through our feet as we carry out the vocation that you've called us to. Lord, we ask all this because of Christ, because of his obedience. We ask. Amen.